I was 25 when I became pastor of a small rural uh, church in a southern state. And believe it or not, I was the 17th pastor in 21 years at this little country church. Yeah, it's a statistic that tells me a million times more today than when I was 25. Um, and although I'd grown up in a, in a small town church in the same state, I had no idea in those days how horribly some churches treat pastors, no matter how loving, no matter how hardworking the ministers may be. I assumed if I loved the people, preached the Word of God to them, gave myself to serve them, they would uh, respond and be grateful. And that was the most naive mistake of my life. But a woman I'll call Patsy increasingly opposed me. Her disagreements turned into criticisms, and the criticisms became more and more caustic until they finally just erupted in, in brazen challenges. If you had the faith you preach about, she once taunted me, you'd leave with no place to go and, and trust God to provide for you. After I'd been there 12 months, I was uh, given a week's vacation, and she managed, while I was away, to arrange a meeting of uh, some of the leaders of the church for the purpose of getting me fired. Uh, later on, she admitted to forgetting to invite those who supported me. Um, and yet, despite her desire to see me go, when she learned that while on vacation, I'd actually interviewed with another church, she called that church across the country and misrepresented herself about uh, who she was and why she was calling in an, effect, in an effort to find out what I'd been doing. And after I returned, she said, uh, Pastor, would you come to a meeting of the church on Saturday night to discuss some problems? Well, I'm a pastor. How can I not go? She's already organized this meeting, you know. And when I arrived, I learned that I was to sit at a chair at the front as the accused, and she was going to stand as a prosecuting attorney. And although most of her efforts that night were frustrated, she did all that she could to humiliate me before the church and to undermine my uh, leadership there. Well, after 15 months of, of this kind of just inward churning and all this anxiety, uh, the stress, well, the Lord opened us a situation in the Chicago area for 15 years and turned our mourning into dancing there and gave us a wonderful church and a long ministry there. But those 15 months in the pressure cooker took their toll. Between us, my wife and I had five hospitalizations and three surgeries. Both of us were told you can never be parents. And that's the way it was for 16 years. Um, eventually, the Lord gave us a baby in bifocals the same year. <clears throat> but I knew I had to be willing to forgive Patsy. But it was hard. I mean, she had treated us in such ungodly ways. In the last month of our time there, my wife was diagnosed with a, a life-threatening um, stress-induced thyroid difficulty that soon, as we got to Chicago, required the removal of her thyroid. And when she first went to the doctor, while we were still in that situation, in this small town, we were outside this small town, this, one of the few doctors in town examined her, and he said, what are those people out there doing to you? Because he knew it had to be something like that to cause 
what she was experiencing. Patsy had just been merciless to us and, and relentless. It was just ongoing, never stopped, just grinding us up. So why, I thought, should I forgive her? She's the one who needs to change. And every day for months on end, if I didn't see her in person, I saw her in my mind. I might be trying to pray and her specter would appear in my mind. Some memory of some scene, something she had done would, would come into my mind. And as I replayed these things, I said on those occasions things I wish I had said, you know, the first time. But I might be driving or, or trying to sleep or even praying. And she would come to my mind and, and a few moments later I would sort of awaken from that replayed scenario. My fists clenched, my teeth clenched and breathing hard and my stomach tightened. But I can't remember ever emerging from one of these frequent episodes without an awareness that I needed to forgive her. That that was the way forward. And especially when she wouldn't, you know, her, her, one of these episodes would invade my praying and I would find myself angry at her and in, in, in yelling at her maybe aloud in, in my prayers. I would realize that Jesus said, and when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. For if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. It's Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. Oh, it was frustrating. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was useless to pray until I forgave her. And I, I can't live without prayer. So how can I come before God and pray when all along between God and myself is this, this awareness that I needed to forgive Patsy. It's one thing for her to accuse me as for failures as her pastor. It's another thing altogether for my own conscience to accuse me before God. So at last, I, I found the grace to let go of my bitterness. Because I realized they, they continue to stoke the smoldering grudge, justified in my own mind what I was doing, and allowing her to control me in absentia, or else I could move toward forgiveness like one who has been forgiven. So this question is, are you a quicker forgiver? A quicker forgiver. The first point here is real Christians want to forgive. Real Christians want to forgive. And the mark of growing as a Christian is, are you a quicker forgiver than you used to be? First, real Christians want to forgive, although my heart was just sometimes a volcano of anger against Patsy. By God's grace, I was also inclined to forgive her. I knew that was the will of God. I knew that was the way forward. And I knew that was the path back to the freedom and joy that I, I wanted. When God makes a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 describes this. When he makes a new creation of someone, he gives us a disposition to obey. A new creation of God wants to do the will of God. And this heart desire to do the Lord's will, such as to forgive, beats in the chest of a Christian even when we sinfully resist it. 
So there's this, what Paul describes as the, the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So you don't always do what you want. I, I want to forgive because that's the will of God and I'm a child of God. And his spirit gives me the inclination to want to forgive. But in my flesh, I don't want to forgive. And there is this struggle. Three times in the Gospels, Jesus directly connects our forgiveness of others with his forgiveness of us. I've already mentioned Mark 11, 25, and 26. There's Matthew 6, 14, and 15. And Luke 6, 37, where he says, forgive, and you will be forgiven. It didn't mean there that we earn God's forgiveness by our forgiving other people. That would make our salvation conditional upon something we do to earn it. In this case, to forgive other people. But these texts show rather that a forgiving spirit characterizes those who are forgiven. Those who are forgiven can know that because they have a spirit inclined to forgive other people. If you've been forgiven, you want to forgive. And those who are unable to forgive reveal they've never experienced the transforming forgiveness of God. So if you are inclined toward forgiveness, genuinely, even when you struggle to do so, that is a mark of grace. A grace that wants to forgive, even when the flesh rages against that. Something in you that says, but God wants me to forgive, and I want to do the will of God. It's hard, but I really want to do the will of God. In Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, he told a parable about a king and one of his servants. The servant owed an unpayable debt, impossible in his lifetime through any means whatsoever to pay this debt. But he asked for mercy, and the king forgave the entire amount. Then the king hears that when the servant went out from there, he found another servant who owed him a quarter, and he choked him. He said, pay what you owe. And he said, have mercy on me, and I will pay you back. And he said, no, and he put him in prison for it. And when the king heard about that, he brought him back in. He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you also not have had compassion on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? And he then condemns the servant to prison where he will spend the rest of his years in a futile attempt to pay off that impossible debt. Then Jesus makes his point. Jesus says, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's verse 35, Matthew 18, 35. Now, unlike the servant in this parable, Christians really want to forgive. We want to forgive from the heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that God has forgiven us so much, a debt we could never remove, a debt we could never pay, makes us willing to want to forgive even when we find it hard. My preacher hero of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, gave us, this as his testimony. He said, I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and I realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody anything. And that's where I want to go next, to talk about being ready to forgive versus extending 
forgiveness. <clears throat> Being ready to forgive versus extending forgiveness. And you're going to have to think hard with me here. And this will be the most challenging part of this. And the part which at first may sound contrary to what you believed before. But, but listen to it. And I, eventually I'll give you some time to ask questions about this. So write them down. <clears throat> Back to Lloyd-Jones' phrase here. Where he says, I, I'm ready to forgive anybody anything. I don't think many or there are many who don't understand the difference between being ready to forgive and actually extending forgiveness, pronouncing forgiveness. So there's, there's heart forgiveness and, if you will, mouth forgiveness. And they're not always the same. Sometimes there's some terrible tragedy, usually a very public kind of thing, and afterwards some well-meaning spokesman will appeal to people to forgive the offender, forgive the murderers. And that's, that's a good call toward that. And sometimes people will publicly say they have forgiven. And I, I think there's, there's benefit in that. But it can confuse the issue to one degree. Because here's a key phrase now. Biblical forgiveness is never given nor required when there is no repentance. In the Bible, we never see someone giving forgiveness... When there is no repentance. Now, Jesus prayed immediately after they nailed him to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. But this wasn't an unconditional forgiveness. Otherwise, these people would have been forgiven the sin of crucifying Jesus, whether they repented or not. On the cross, Jesus did not forgive, J. Adams points out. On the cross, Jesus did not forgive. He prayed. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And then referring to the martyr Stephen's similar prayer for the forgiveness of his persecutors in Acts 7, verse 60, Adams continues. The same is true for Stephen. If forgiveness is unconditional... Jesus, Stephen, and others would have forgiven their murderers rather than what, if true, would be a roundabout way of doing so. At other times, Jesus had no hesitancy in saying, your sins be forgiven you. He didn't do that on the cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them. Adams continues, Jesus' prayer was answered in the response to the preaching of Peter and the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And on those occasions when thousands of Jews repented and believed the gospel, they were not forgiven the sin of crucifying the Savior apart from believing that he was dying for their sins, but precisely by doing so in response to the faithful preaching of the gospel at Jerusalem. So, to recapitulate there, Jesus didn't look at them and say, I forgive you, your sins be forgiven you. He prayed God would forgive them of this greatest of sins. They've crucified Jesus. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. In his heart, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And that prayer was answered when they repented. They weren't forgiven just because Jesus said that. 
It wasn't unconditional. They were forgiven when they repented at the preaching of Peter and others. See the difference? In the Bible, forgiveness is never extended without repentance. So, what Christians should always be ready to do is be ready to forgive. We should have the attitude of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. We should have heart forgiveness from the first moment of the offense. But we are not required to say, I forgive you, unless someone repents. We're not required to extend forgiveness. We're to, we're to have it in the heart. We're to be ready to say, we're to be ready to say, I forgive you, but we're not required to say, I forgive you, unless they repent. The great example, God Himself. In the Psalms, it says, He is ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive every person on the planet, every sin they've ever committed, right? But when and only when does he forgive? When they repent. So God has a heart that is willing to forgive everybody of every sin. But he doesn't pronounce them forgiven until they repent and come to Christ. That's the model for us. We are to be ready to forgive. We are never to harbor bitterness. We are to have a heart that is tender toward those who offend us. We are to be approachable. It should be easy for them to come to us and repent. But we are not required to go to them and to say, I forgive you, unless they repent. Because see, when there is an offense, when they offend us, when they sin against us, there are two parties involved and each one of them has a responsibility. If you offend me, my responsibility is to be ready to forgive you, to not be bitter. Your responsibility is to repent of your sin and to ask forgiveness. And when you do that, I'm should, I should be ready to say, I forgive you. But I'm not required to go to you and pronounce you forgiven when you don't repent. That could only make things worse. If I come to Ian and say, Ian, I want you to know, I forgive you, brother, for what you did. That might prompt him to go, oh, well, who do you think you are? Condescending, you know, and me, oh, I forgive you, you know. <laughs> I mean, that could make it worse. Now, my attitude should be one that's very approachable. It should be easy for him. When he is convicted and when he's ready to repent, he should find it very easy to come to me knowing that I will receive him, knowing that I will pronounce him forgiven. Yes, I forgive you, brother. Of course I forgive you. But we both have a responsibility. My responsibility is to be ready to forgive in the heart. But I don't have to say it with my mouth until it is sought. See that? That's just like God. God is ready to forgive anyone who will come and repent. But they are not actually forgiven. He does not pronounce them forgiven until they do repent. In the same way, I'm not required to pronounce you forgiven unless you seek it. I'm to be ready. So there, there, 
Forgiveness we often think of as just one entity, one event, one time. There are two parts to forgiveness, an inward part and an outward part. I'm always to have the inward part. I'm always to be ready to forgive. But I'm not required to, to, for the outward part to be there unless you seek it. Again, I know you have questions. I'll give you opportunity for that in a few minutes. Leon Morris, a late New Testament scholar from Australia, said, We can always think of some good reason why in any particular case we need not forgive, but that is always an error. Growing Christians will recognize that error, and we become quicker over time to say, I'm ready to forgive. Because at first, we don't want to forgive, right? We've been offended. We are angry. We are bitter. We tend to harbor that grudge. You're growing as a Christian when you more quickly get to the point I'm ready to forgive. We more quickly get to the point where we're ready to forgive. Now let's deal with the idea of forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. Well, the Bible doesn't use that phrase. The Bible doesn't contain the expression forgive and forget. Not only that, the Bible never commands us to forget an offense once we have forgiven it. Though, Forgetfulness sometimes results from forgiveness, but we are not required to forget. Now, the promise of God in the Bible for all who come to know Him through Christ, in Jeremiah 31, 34, is this, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Their sin I will remember no more. But God doesn't actually forget our sin because the bible teaches god is omniscient which means he knows everything right can you know something god doesn't know (laughs) of course not can you remember sins from your past that you have confessed and god has forgiven of course Well, you think you can know something God doesn't know? (laughs) Can you remember those sins and God doesn't know about them? Of course not. What it means when he says, I will remember your sins no more, is that he will not remember them against us anymore. He will not bring them up again. He will not remember them against us. And that's the way we are to forgive others. To say, I forgive you, is not a promise to not to erase it from our memories. That may be humanly impossible. But it means I will not use it against you anymore. When I say I forgive you, that is a promise. I will not bring that up again and use it against you. Now, there may be situations where trust needs to be rebuilt. I mean, if, let's say, adultery happens and there is sincere repentance and one spouse says to another, I thoroughly repent and so forth, and the other spouse says, I forgive you. Do you think the offended spouse erases that from memory? It would be impossible, right? it would be impossible to forget it ever happened. But we're not to use it against them as a weapon anymore. 
Once we forgive, we are, we're saying, I will not remember that against you. Now, there are situations where trust needs to be rebuilt, however. But that's not saying we don't forgive. If a spouse commits adultery, it's going to take a long time for trust to be rebuilt. If a, if a person, let's say, in a, in a church situation was convicted as a, a child molester, and then let's say they thoroughly repent, there's no question, absolutely no question, that by anyone in the whole church that the person has thoroughly repented. That doesn't mean you let them work in the nursery. There are some sins that have lifelong consequences. And, and trust needs to be rebuilt. If, if a pastor commits adultery, I mean, he's done in the ministry, basically. Though he thoroughly repents, he can be under the discipline of the church and remain in that church and the church give a program of repentance and restoration and he fully goes through it and fully satisfies it that doesn't mean they have to restore him to the office of pastor so there are some sins that we forgive but there are still lifelong consequences there are some sins that when they occur you no one can forget them no one can forget them but what it means is we won't use them against them anymore as a weapon. So some sins, it's impossible to forget them. But if we say we forgive someone, we won't remember it against them anymore. When I first overcame my unwillingness to forgive Patsy. It, it was as though I'd had an enemy's flaming arrow, flaming poison-tipped arrow in my chest. And when I first ripped that arrow out, the pain was almost not worth it. It was incredibly hard to give that up. I, I want to hurt back. And I, I'm now willing to give that up. And the removal of that almost seemed worse than the torment of, of living with it. But immediately after that extraction, a healing began to happen. The wound slowly began to heal. A cleansing process of the poison from my body began. But not all the poison of bitterness was removed in one episode. Although I'd passed the greatest crisis in forgiving Patsy, I discovered a cyclical process, if you will, that I had to go through again and again and again. In other words, I had passed the great crisis of forgiveness, but I found I had to forgive over and over and over. Forgiveness is not often accomplished in a single decisive battle. 
I, I wanted, I sincerely wanted to forgive Patsy, but when my mind relived her attacks, those wounds were opened up again. Some healing had happened, but when I would relive the original attack, I felt the wound again, the wound opened up a little bit. Jesus teaches us, Luke 17, 3 through 4, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And I think we're to take this literally. We should forgive someone who sincerely repents no matter how many times it is. Now, I think it would be a little odd <laughs> for a person to commit the same sin seven times in a day against you and then sincerely repent of that sin seven times the same day. But if that, if that happened, Jesus said, I am to forgive. I mean, I, I think it'd be really odd if, you know, afterwards Brian comes up and just punches me in the face, says, boy, you, we invited you up here and did all this and brought you up here and all that, and you just really blew it. He punches me in the face. <laughs> and then a few minutes, he gets convicted, and he comes back, I'm, I'm sorry, brother, I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Okay, you know. And then we go to lunch after this, and after lunch, he thinks about it all over again, and he just punches me in the face in the restaurant. And then we go out to the car, and he says, I shouldn't have done that. I, please, you know, <laughs> forgive me. And we get to the hotel, you know. He gets, he gets out of the car, and he just punches me in the face again. Seven times. Seven times today he does that. And every time he sincerely repents, well, that would be a little odd, you know. It's, it's not ordinary. If it were to literally happen, if he were to literally repent, I should literally forgive him. So, but that, so that's a little odd. But you know what is reality? He can punch me in the face once, be sincerely convicted, I can forgive him, but then six times the rest of the day I relive that and get mad at him all over again. And I have to forgive him six more times, even though he's not even around. You with me? You forgive them, but then you think about it some more. And every time you think about it, it's like the very first time you had to forgive. You have to forgive all over again. The difference is, the second time is a little easier than the first time. And the third time is a little easier than the second time. So it's like a cycle. You have this great crisis where you just don't know if you can give it up. You don't know if you can forgive, but, but by the grace of God, you do. In this great crisis, you rip that arrow out of your chest, and the healing begins. But it isn't too long again until you recall that wound, that, that offense all over again, and that wound opens up. And you've got to go through the crisis of forgiveness again. It's not as hard as the first time, but it's hard. So you go through that. It's, it's done, you think. And then you come about, you remember it again. 
or something else they did. And you have to go through the crisis of forgiveness again. And it's hard. You don't want to forgive. But it's a little easier than the second time. And you do. And the third, the fourth time is easier than the third, and so forth. And eventually you get to the point where it's done. Healing has occurred. There may be a scar. It's never quite, the relationship is never quite the same in the sense of you can never forget because the offense was so great. And that's eventually where I got with Patsy. I could think about her without being bitter against her. So the point is, the crisis of forgiveness is not, is not always won in a single decisive battle. You may have to forgive again and again and again. And although she never sought my forgiveness, and I don't even know if she's still alive, by God's grace, I reached the place <clears throat> where if she ever came to me, I was ready to forgive it. I had inwardly forgiven her <clears throat> many times. It was hard. But I finally got to the place where I was ready to forgive her anytime. And I believe that it's because I became willing to forgive Patsy, I have forgotten most of the things she did. So sometimes forgiveness results in forgetting. But we're not required to forget. But the warning now is just because you have forgotten doesn't necessarily mean you have forgiven. It may just be the passing of time. You have so many other files in the file cabinet of your memory that some of these from long ago you don't look at that often. They're not among your most recent memories, and so they're not among your most frequent current memories. And you can deceive yourself in saying, well, I guess I've dealt with that. I'm done with that. don't want to think about that anymore. And because you seldom think about it, you've generally forgotten it, you think you have forgiven. So you can truly forgive and never forget. Not angrily, but you never forget. And you can forget and not forgive. Be careful that you don't think you are forgiven just because you have forgotten. Does the return of a seldom remembered face or incident cause your stomach to boil again, your jaw to tighten? And you may not have forgiven just because you generally have forgotten. So let's probe the heart here at the end, and then we'll take some questions. Probing the heart here. C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> so if you don't have something right now or someone to forgive, be patient. <laughs> you will. First question, are you ready to forgive? Perhaps it might better be stated in the reverse. Is there anyone you're not ready to forgive? Someone, church, at work, in your neighborhood, in your family. 
Their face causes more of the acid of bitterness in your heart than the love of forgiveness. If so, the only way forward is clear. As King David testified about his own experience with the Lord, Psalm 86.5, the Lord is ready to forgive, so we too need to be ready to forgive. That's progressing in Christ-likeness. Second, do you need to initiate the process of forgiveness with anyone? You need to initiate the process. If you know you are the offender, well, it's clear. You go and repent. Don't merely apologize. Repent. Ask their forgiveness. That puts the ball in that, their court. And if they're not ready to forgive, that's very uncomfortable. But in a sense, you make yourself vulnerable. You don't say, you know, I apologize. And, and in the worst, we see this all the time with U.S. politicians. You know, if I offended anyone, I apologize. It's kind of like, you know, how could anyone be offended by what I did? But if you're so stupid enough, if you're such a terrible person that you were offended by something I did which shouldn't have offended you, well, then I apologize. Correct way is just the opposite. You humble yourself and say, I did offend you. Will you forgive me? And so I've got this thing called forgiveness. Now I'm going to put it in your court. And they have to respond. And some people don't want the ball in their court. They don't want to have to deal with this. They want to be able to nurture their forgiveness. They want to have a reason to still resent you. And once you say, ask for forgiveness, and have humbled yourself and done that, they, they lose the right to that. They can't justify their hatred of you anymore. And they want to. <laughs> so don't just apologize, repent, ask their forgiveness. And then they have to, maybe that's the point, that's the crisis. They have to say yes or no. But you've done what you needed to do. During my final two weeks as Patsy's pastor, when I knew I was going to Chicago, and I'm, I'm leaving, I, I began to gossip about her sins. I felt the freedom to begin telling everybody, you may not know it, but I want you, before I leave here, I want you to know what she did. And I began telling all these people what she had done. And I got convicted of gossiping about her sins. And the Lord convicted me, I need to go and ask her forgiveness for sinning against her in this way. And I tried so hard to reason around that. Lord, 99% of the problem here is what she's done, not what I've done. You know, all this offense here, 99% of this is what she has done. And as though the Lord said, yeah, but you're responsible for your 1%. And I knew I wouldn't be free until I went and asked her forgiveness. And I knew that if I did that, that would only give her more in, in ammunition against me. See, I told you what a rat he was. He's even admitted to gossip. And that's exactly what she did. But I was free. And left my reputation with God. But I think what happened is some who were on the fence, you know, I had the people who supported me, those who didn't, some were on the fence. I think when they saw that, that persuaded many of them that, you know, they, they came to my side of things there. Uh, whether they did or not, it didn't matter, though. But I was free before God, and that's all that mattered. 
And I tell you, you don't want to be in that situation. If you're ever in a situation where you're about to leave and go somewhere, you've got a bad situation, you want to leave, and you go, don't fire parting shots that later on you'll, you'll regret and you'll have to come back and humble yourself and ask forgiveness. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. People are going to, far, they're going to think far better of you if you leave without firing parting shots than if you do. If you fire those parting shots, then those who remain say, yeah, I heard he was a really bad guy. She was really bad. This only proves it. They're probably right. But if when they know you've been offended, you don't fight back. But in a Christ-like way, you, you let that go. They're more likely to think, you know, this other one's probably the one that's the problem here. That's not why you do it. You do it to, be, to obey God, to do what's right in God's sight, leave the consequences with Him. Now, it may be, though, that you need to initiate the process with someone who has offended you. They have done the offense. You may need to go to them to make forgiveness happen here. Jesus said in Luke 17, 3, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, then forgive him. As obvious as the sin is to you, they may not realize that they have offended you hasn't that ever happened to you someone says to you it comes to you angrily and you, and you did something and you realize i am so sorry i had no idea i didn't see you there <laughs> or oh i wasn't referring to you or I, I had no idea we've all been in that situation well believe it or not it can happen in reverse other people can sin against you and it's so obvious to you how could they not know they offended you? But it really can happen. And they are just like you would. If you sinned against someone and you didn't know it, surely you would say, I want to know that and I want to make it right. Oh, I am so sorry. I had no idea. Please forgive me. And then it's reconciled. The same thing can happen in reverse. And maybe you need to take the initiative to say to someone, you, you have offended me and we we need to talk this through now most of the time most of the time what we need to do is what the bible says in first peter 4 8 when it says love covers a multitude of sins that's the way we should deal with it as often as possible to just cover their sin with love and to say you know brian was just having a bad day <laughs> I understand. I have bad days too. Because if we confronted one another about every sin, we'd just be a mutual confrontation society, right? Can you imagine a husband and wife confronting each other every time they offended one another? What kind of marriage would that be? Did you know you offended me 18 times before breakfast this morning? No, we just say, she was up all night with a sick baby, <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm going to just cover that with love. Or he had a bad day at work. He's grouchy. I'm just going to cover that. But sometimes you, it, the re, when we have to confront someone is we can't forget it. Every time we're with them, there's something between us, and it has to be resolved. I've tried to just cover it with love. I've tried to just overlook it. I can't. 
for this relationship to continue, for it to go forward, we have to resolve this. That's when you go to someone and say, you may not realize it, but when you did this, you really hurt me, you offended me, and I, I want us to work this out. You know, be confrontive, you, you confront, but in a loving way, the way you wouldn't want to be confronted. Maybe that's where you are. Final question is, do you love forgiveness? Do you love forgiveness? reason I ask this is I know professing Christians who seem to take pride in their ability to hold a grudge. I, I've, I've seen very close up people with dementia who can't remember hardly anything but they remember every offense against them. They don't remember what they had for lunch, but they can tell you something that someone did to them at lunch. <laughs> they can tell you all the details about it. They can't remember anything else that day, but they can remember that you, you don't want to be that kind of person. A Christian loves forgiveness. And they love forgiveness because they have been forgiven. That's why Jesus said that one of the ways we know we've been forgiven is because we forgive others. When you love forgiveness, you love to, to experience it and you love to give it. That's why a ready willingness to forgive is such a clear mark of growth in godliness. It is so godlike. It is so Christ-like to forgive So the more you're becoming like Christ, the more quickly you forgive. The more you love the idea of forgiveness. And you want to be more of a forgiver than one who remembers offenses. The godly and persecuted 5th century preacher John Chrysostom concluded, Nothing causes us to so nearly resemble God as the forgiveness of injuries. I know you have questions now, and in our last 10 minutes, let's take those. What questions do you have about this? My question is, how come Ian gets to be shot, but I'm doing the punching in the face? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You gave an example about um, why you're not required to go to somebody and say, I forgive you, uh -huh. and how that might, not be, that might be counterproductive. Um, so I'm kind of thinking of scriptures that say, um, bless them that revile you, do good to them that hurt you. Yes. Um, um, I'm obviously have one where it says, uh, heap, you shall heap coals upon their head. Yes. Um, so... Um, there's places where we can extend. Yeah, I think that's deliberately yeah. extend love to somebody and show them that we still love them. Yes. Even though you might not have to say. I think those are that those things show we're ready to forgive. I'm making it easy for you to seek forgiveness. I'm demonstrating I don't harbor bitterness in my heart. Someone else. Hey. 
Can you comment on the believer's responsibility towards an unrepentant person when you've confronted them? Yeah. Um, their inability to repent is not a license for us to be unchristian toward them. Um, I mean, let, let's use the case of church discipline. If a person finally is, reaches the last stage of discipline by the church and they remove him from membership, that's not a license to treat them ungodly way or be unchristian. We're still to be civil toward them. That doesn't give us permission to you know, punch him in the face as we go down the street. We're still, how would we treat any unbeliever? With love, with kindness, but we don't treat them as a brother anymore. We don't give them the, the advantages of, of fellowship, the benefits of, of being in Christ, in fellowship with someone. So I think that's the way we treat someone who has offended us, but they're unrepentant because they're acting like an unbeliever, at least as far as that goes. So we're not required then to treat them as a brother. It may be this is one of the indications that you're not. So we're to be civil toward them. Uh, we're to be as loving as we can. We're commanded love our enemies. Um, so there are some similarities in the way we treat Christians, but there are dissimilarities. We're not to give them the privileges of, of fellowship, and so to speak. So uh, in one sense, we treat them like any unbeliever, which is with love and kindness so far as we can. I mean, the Bible also says, as far as lies within you, be at peace with all men. If someone's not willing to be at peace with you, you're not to be a doormat. We're to turn the other cheek, but we are not to, um, you know, be a doormat. We're also, we have some other responsibilities of, well, we just have other responsibilities as well. So I don't know if that answers. We, if they're unrepentant, we are to treat them civilly. We're to love them as best we can. But that doesn't mean we're to act as though nothing has happened. Next question. Um, if... If I'm in the process of trying to work through and forgive someone in my heart, you know, uh -huh. it's, it's a really deep wound, I'm trying to pull out that arrow, and they come to me and say, you know, I know I've wronged you, will you forgive me? But I'm not, I'm honestly seeking to, but I'm not at the place to do that yet. What should my response be? Can I say, I'm trying to forgive you, come back later, or I'll come to you? Or, yeah. like, should, should I say, um, like, I, I will forgive you, and say that in faith that eventually I will be able to pull that arrow out. Yeah, I think you're honest and say, I will forgive you. I'm praying for God to help me. I know it's right for me to forgive you. I'm struggling with it still. And to ask them to pray for you, perhaps. And then when you reach the point where you believe you have, you go to them and clear the air and say, God has given me the grace to forgive you fully. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't lie and be a hypocrite, but now you, you're sinning by not forgiving because that's what you're, you're called to do. So I think we're, we're honest, and yet we, we 
move toward obedience and, and uh, repentance as quickly as possible. Forgive them. And so if there's any doubt, we come to the person and say, God has given me the grace to fully forgive you. Thank you for coming to me and asking for my forgiveness. I should have more fully forgiven sooner. Forgive me for not extending forgiveness fully at the time. Let me mention one that comes to mind that someone may be thinking but not asking. How do you forgive someone that, you can't, that will never come to you? Like I said, I don't know if Patsy's even alive. This is commonly so with, with parents uh, who have died, and they should have come to you about some things, or someone else who has died, and you, they will never seek your repentance. What do you do? Well, I mean, you bring it to God. And God knows your heart, whether you're ready to forgive or not, in which that's the place we must come to. And to say to God, Lord, I, in my heart, I forgive that person. It's humanly impossible for them to ever seek my forgiveness. But Lord, I want to have the attitude toward you that I would have had they come to me and I fully forgave them. So in this case, it's just all between us and God, and He knows our hearts, whether we, are, we have passed the crisis of forgiveness, whether we are ready to forgive or not. Someone else. warning you have for praying through other portions of uh, scripture yeah yeah the question was what about praying through other passages other than the psalms i mean frankly i almost never go to anywhere else but the psalms but uh, when i teach this in full i actually give examples uh, which i guess i can do briefly now i think the second best place to pray through scripture is the new testament letters you have so much condensed and compressed in almost every verse almost every verse suggests something to pray about Indeed, this is where many of us hear something like this before. End of Ephesians 1, end of Ephesians 3, there are prayers there. And we say, you know, we ought to pray those prayers today. And we should. But my contention is we can pray the whole letter of Ephesians, not just the prayers. So it, it's fairly easy to take most verses in the New Testament letters and turn them into prayer. And then what about a narrative passage? This is the biggest chunk of our Bible, right? This is so much of the Gospels, the book of Acts, or narratives, all those Old Testament stories. So we're going to know how to pray the Bible. We have to do that. I, I think in those, we recognize that, that we don't look at the text microscopically as we do with the Psalms or New Testament letters. With a, with a narrative, you back up and look at the whole narrative. Because you try to pray microscopically, for example, over John chapter 5, John chapter 5 begins with, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Okay? Yeah. Let's eat, somebody said. Or, you know, maybe you have to confess you feasted too much or, you know, whatever. But it isn't easy, is it? No. What you do is you back up and look at all nine verses in that story. See, in a narrative in the Bible, usually you have these stage-setting verses after which comes the punchline. It may only be the punchline you would pray about in a narrative, not every detail setting the stage. However, every detail that prompts something, you pray about it. Maybe when you read, after this, there's a feast of the Jews, and you think of some church banquet that's coming up, and that prompts you to pray that people would come, people would be saved, you know, whatever it might be. That's legitimate. Because the Bible tells us we're to pray about everything, right? 
So everything that comes to mind from that is worthy of bringing to God. Even if sinful thoughts come to mind, which clearly the text isn't teaching, even if sinful thoughts come to mind, what should you do? Turn them Godward. Pray about them. Bring them to God. So once having done this, I'm confident that you can open the Bible at any point and pray. Certain passages are easier than others. The Psalms are the easiest because so often the very words are our very prayers. When the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will I cry and you will not hear? That's my exact prayer so often. The New Testament letters are not quite as easy, but pretty easy. When it says, love one another, new commandment I give to you, love one another. I have to translate that into, Lord, help me love this person. Help me love that person. That's pretty easy to do. A narrative is more difficult yet. So that's why I almost never go anywhere but the Psalms. But as I said, once you learn how to do it, you can do it anywhere in the Bible. The genealogies, I mean, you can do it anywhere. It's not as easy in the genealogies as in the Psalms, but you can do it. It's all hand in the back, I think. Yeah, I find, I read Proverbs every day. I have for decades. But it's not easy for me to pray through just because it jumps around so much. Uh, in one sense, every, almost every proverb prompts something to pray about. But because it's just, you know, disconnected one to the next, usually, I find it hard. The Psalms, there is still a sense of flow. And a New Testament letter, even though each verse is kind of different teaching, nevertheless, there's a flow to the argument in the letter. But Proverbs is just kind of one independent thought after the other. And I can, but I find it harder. Yes. Where are you pointing? I'm right here. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, back to forgiveness. Um, when you've sinned against someone, you've repented, you've gone and asked for, for their, their forgiveness, they've given it to you, um, but then in subsequent situations, they've rehashed that sin that you've committed against them. Um, what do you, like, what's our responsibility in that? Yeah, that, that's tough. Um, in, a, in a sense, they have sinned again. And so you might come to them and say, I, I thought we had resolved this. Am I mistaken? Because you've spoken of it again. Is there something I need to make right? Is, is there... You may discover that they, have, they still harbor some bitterness. They have, they're not willing to forgive. In which case, do you need to do something else? Or do you need to treat them as we said over here? You need to, maybe the relationship's changed now. As long as they're in that mindset, you can't have full, enjoy full fellowship with them as before. And so you treat them civilly, respectfully, love them best you can. But uh, as long as there's that sin between you and they're not willing to deal with it, then you have to love your enemy, so to speak. That's the principle. Anyone else? Is it possible to not struggle with forgiveness? Um, yes. Uh, I, I, in that I don't think Jesus did. 
Well, I, and I, I the more Christ-like we become, that, I mean, that's the whole point. Are you a quicker forgiver? Yeah. Do you struggle with it less? Yeah. And my argument is a growing Christian struggles with it less over time. They find it easier to forgive because of their greater awareness of the gospel, their greater awareness of their own sins. And so I think it's common to struggle with it, but not as long, perhaps, or not as hard, because you, you've, you've forgiven so many people. I, I guess what prompted it is I'm, I'm thinking through, and I know a lot of people struggle with forgiveness, and I'm like kind of thinking through, like, is there anyone in my mind that I can't forgive? And I'm just like, no, I'm, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like, I think we're cool. Well, good. So, um, so. But just be patient. Yeah, uh, and that's what I was going yeah. to say. I was like, is it just a matter of time? Or? Brian may punch you in the face afterwards, you know. All right. Be ready. Yeah. It'll happen. Some guy, when you're driving home, some guy cuts you off in traffic, and uh, you'll have to be ready to forgive that guy if he ever comes to you. So. <laughs> to uh, pick back up on what JR was asking about, it's one thing when it's somebody outside your close circle. Yeah. But if your spouse yeah. or your child or parent, it, yeah, it won't respond to you. Yeah, I maybe touch on that because that's probably more germane to our life. Yeah, because it's an ongoing relationship. It's not one you can sever by going to another church or another job, or you don't anticipate it ever being severed. So you think this is going to be here as long as we're both alive. That's, I mean, that's a different dynamic in one sense. For example, let's talk about church discipline. It's one thing when the Bible says to treat a disciplined person as an unbeliever, meaning you don't, you don't have the right to hate them, but you don't give them the privileges of fellowship. It's something else if it's somebody in the church that you didn't ever talk to that much anyway. But what if the church disciplines a close family member of yours? And the Bible says, don't even eat with such a one. Well, okay, Christmas is coming, you know, Thanksgiving's coming, family occasions. So I think you have a pre-existing family relationship there that we must recognize. We can't expect, if, if the church disciplines your spouse and your spouse is unrepentant, that doesn't justify divorce. You have to eat with them. So, I mean, you have this ongoing relationship that is now changed. But it is a pre-existing relationship that you have to recognize. So in the same way, if someone in your close circle family, if there's sin between you and you can't reconcile it, you, you've got to live with that person still. But it's going to be affected. And so, again, the love your enemy principle comes into play here. Um, and... and that, that actually may be the most common one. I mean, it is the most common in that we sin against most, those who are around the most, right? It may not be the greatest sin. Your spouse may not sin against you the greatest sin ever committed against you. It may be by a boss. It may be by someone else in business who, who you know, sins against you greater than anyone else ever does. Like Patsy, you know, one of the greatest sins against That may be greater than someone in your family does, but there's going to be more frequency in the family because you're with them all the time. And that's where love has to cover a multitude of sins. Um, and that's when we learn that love is a choice, not an emotion. 
Uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's really hard. But the, every church has a lot of people where, you know, one spouse comes to church, the other one is not even a Christian. And the Christian spouse has to live with a constant offense, constant struggle of living with a spouse that is darkness and light. And they have to love someone who doesn't love Jesus. And they have to love someone who lives in sin. And someone who lives in sin is going to sin against them a lot. And it's hard. It's hard. So that's why I, I, I wanted to deal with this issue because we all deal with this. This touches just about almost every one of us. Uh, <laughs> and if you're married, I want to talk to your wife. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, it is so hard. Every relationship is affected by sin, and we all have multiple relationships. So this is one of the toughest of the nine. That's why I had it near the end of the book. You know, I didn't want people to throw the book down, you know, right at the beginning. Tomorrow's going to be better, though, okay? Tomorrow's going to be a lot more encouraging, a lot more edifying. I, I know that wasn't a definitive answer, but, I mean, it, it, you just have to recognize... Love, yet the love your enemy's principle comes into play in this situation. So in reality, we're always having to cover a multitude of sins by love. True love covers, must cover a multitude of sins. Uh, just one quick one. Is it ever spiritually healthy to withdraw from a time near the person that has hurt you? Sorry to pick on you, Brian, but... If he wants, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to sit very close to him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Has he recur- yeah, I think it is, it is healthy. Sometimes there must be that, depending on circumstances, if a person is going through something and they're very violent right now, yeah, you, you don't get close to them. In quite the same way, you, you realize that they've got, they've got an issue they have to deal with before this relationship's going to be restored. So prudence, wisdom, in that case requires uh, you don't provoke them. You don't put yourself in a situation where you're likely to provoke them. It's not loving to provoke them. Anyone else? had a question around um, like past sins towards another person in uh-huh. light of repentance and forgiveness. Uh-huh. Um, so if, you, if it's something that you have dealt with with the Lord and asked forgiveness and have truly repented of and haven't turned back that way, uh-huh. this person is no longer a part of your life. Is yeah. there um, like a... Are you required to seek them out yeah. so we'll make it right? I don't think so. Um, now, there may be some things in which it is. Maybe if you've stolen from a former boss, you know, something like that, you, you need to maybe confess something like that. But l- let me use a common one. Uh, th- let's say that years ago, before you got married, you're involved in immorality or just too physical with someone before you were married, or maybe, uh, you know, uh, just that, that whole kind of scenario. I don't think that we're required in that to go and seek that person out. I think if, if an unexpected uh, encounter happens, I mean, you just run into someone at a mall, you know, what I, the kind of thing I'm talking about. 
and a conversation develops, it, it may be appropriate at that point to say, I, I need to ask your forgiveness, you know, for being very selfish when we were dating, or just something like that. You, but I don't think you're required to seek that person out. Uh, and I don't, th- I know you should not confess something to someone like that uh, if they're not aware of the sin. For example, I'm, I'm thinking of situations right now on college campuses where the Spirit of God would be at work. There would be meetings where people were confessing sins and so forth, and, and young men would confess lusting after, other, after young women. And yeah, that is really awkward, you know, because uh, for a variety of reasons. Number one, the young woman didn't know. Uh, now she can, there's no way she can ever, you know, be anywhere near this guy because it's just so awkward. So if a person doesn't know uh, that you have sinned against them, a lot of cases you don't need to go to them and ask their forgiveness because they, they don't know that there's been an offense. Your sin, sin is against God. So confession usually needs to be only as wide as the circle of offense. If I sin against the whole church, I need to confess to the whole church. If I've sinned just against you, I need to confess just to you. So the, the confession and repentance needs only be as broad as the knowledge of the sin. If I have sinned by lusting against someone, the only one who knows that is God. So I need to confess that just to God. Have I, is that clear? I'm not sure. There's so many things about that. I, I, I don't know if I've raised more questions than I've answered. But yeah, the general rule is your confession only needs to be as broad as the circle of knowledge of the offense. And there are sometimes we're not required to seek someone out. Sometimes we are. If we, if we know that something has happened that needs to be restored. Like if I've stolen from somebody and they don't know about it, I, I need to restore that. They, they have a loss. They don't know about the loss. They're, they have a loss, a measurable loss. But there are a lot of times something in the past, uh, it's, it's different than that. I'm not required to seek them out, to get on Facebook and you know, certainly not put anything there uh, on Facebook, even a private message, because then that could be used against you. Now that's on record and you know that could be misused against you um so i'll i'll leave it at that anyone else their time is gone questions going once here's one here okay so forgiving other people may be hard but forgiving yourself for something that you've done even though you you know you've been forgiven Mm -hmm. that may be even harder because I know, like for yeah. myself, I struggle with that, uh, even though I've repented. But guilt and shame keeps coming, so yep. how would I go about, would I have to go through that cycle for myself? You preach the gospel to yourself every day. Yeah, simple. I mean, clarity on the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself every day. You know, if Brian punches me in the face, since we're using him as our punching bag here. Yeah. You know... Years ago, I may never think of that, you know. Years ago, I may forget that totally. But I don't forget my own sins. Like I forget usually like, like that. So I remember things vividly from decades ago. So I understand. And I have to bring that to the cross repeatedly. 
but it all comes back to the gospel. Clarity on the gospel, and I never get beyond the gospel. There are no spiritual depths beyond the gospel. It's not like you get the gospel, that's the ABCs, then you go into the real meat and milk of Scripture and the spiritual disciplines and all things. No, no, the spiritual disciplines only bring us deeper into the glories of the gospel. So that's, that's we, we never get beyond the gospel. We preach it to ourselves every day. It may be a good place to, to end. So tomorrow we're going to talk questions. going to be, I think, a lot more encouraging, a lot more hopeful. Uh, and I don't want to end on an unhopeful note. Let's come back to Christ and the gospel and what he has done for all of us. We are, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And he forgives us, not because of how, you know, how much we go to other people and do things right, but because of what God has done for us in Christ.